But first, John, this evening, we're in chapter three. Uh, no quiz tonight. Um, uh, sorry to let you down that way. We'll take a break from that and jump right into the text. But in First John, we, we, it's in our series of um, concerning life, light, and love, a study of First John. We look at these continuing themes. We're going to be in chapter 3, and we're going to hopefully look at verses 11 through 18 this evening. And um, I'm excited to, to share with you from God's Word what the Christians love life should be like. The Christians love life. Um, we're going to look together at these verses, but let's go to the Lord in prayer before we get any further. All right, Father, thank you for a wonderful start and beginning so far in the, in the service this evening. Thank you for those that lifted up voices that, that you have given them to echo praises and to edify one another, to remind each other of the great and marvelous truths of you, God, and your Son, Christ. Thank you, Lord, as we take time here to to fix our attention and think on the things of the word tonight. I pray that these things that we consider and that we learn would stick and that we would implement them in our lives, that we would see the seriousness and the, and, and the importance on heeding the word of God and applied into our lives. Thank you for the scriptures, Lord. May we value them this evening in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, people today seem to put a lot of emphasis on being loved more than the emphasis on working to love others. You see this in society today, don't you? There's a big emphasis on that. What can I do so people can love me? How can I portray myself? How can I carry myself, act, dress, talk? What kind of job? Where can I live? How can I portray myself in a way that that others will just love me, not even beyond accepting, but love me. And then there's all sorts of marketing gimmicks out there to help people, um, that the selling pitch is to help you be loved by other people. Uh, we see that all through advertising, from the cars you drive, the clothes you wear, the, the perfume or cologne that you put on, or whatever it may be. There's a lot of emphasis on that, an imbalance, balanced emphasis on love. John, the Apostle John, writes about love a lot in 1 John. It's a reoccurring theme. It's common. We see it come up time and time and time again in his little letter. And you remember his style of writing, as I've pointed out many times before, is sometimes compared to a woven fabric. A woven fabric, if you'd picture that this evening for a moment, where a, uh, a thread appears for a little while, and then it goes below the, the, the pattern or the piece for some time and space, and then it comes back up, and then you see it again, and then as the process works, you begin to see the picture all together with this woven together theme that goes under the, 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 um, the project and then back the fabric and then comes back to the surface. Love is one of those recurring themes. Love is a the theme of the passage this evening. Um, verses 11 through all the way down to 24. So from 11 to the end of chapter 3 in 1 John contain the second appearance of the topic of love. And we see love in different ways throughout the epistle, but this is the second major appearance. The first would have been in chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. 
concerning love. And in discussing the practice of sin, like we just have been in verses 4 through 10 of chapter 3, we're talking a lot about sin, what it looks like and where it comes from and how and where it should be and find its place in the life of a believer or shouldn't. John concluded with these remarks, these words, Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. It's a conclusion to his discussion concerning sin and writing in that. So John considered love to be a manifestation of righteousness. Love is a, when, when one demonstrates love, it's a manifestation of righteousness, of walking in the light and life with Christ and love as well. But on the other hand, a lack of love, John considers, to be an expression of sin, of living continually in sin. So, presence of love, Christ-like love, I might add, biblical love, is a manifestation of righteousness. Absence of love is an exposure of the existence of sin in someone's life. Okay? And we're going to see these things here as John shows us. So look with me, 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 24, and see that God requires Christians to love others like he does. If you're a Christian here tonight, it is a requirement, it is a commandment of God that you love other Christians, that we love each other just like God loves us concerning our Christian love life. So we look here at number one, and verses 11 through 16 is how we'll look at this by way of division and exegeting the passage here. Verse 11 explains why the absence of love. Verse uh, 10. So verse 10 talks about the absence of love. Verse 11 is discussing why there's an absence of love, and it demonstrates the absence of righteousness that God has commanded man, woman, every Christian to have love. So we'll, we'll illustrate this, this way. First point, I guess, this evening, if you want to put it that way, no love, no righteousness. Where there is no love, there is no righteousness, is the point that John is making here. So verse 11, look at this scripture with me. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. This is the message you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. So, first of all, very simply, the command is stated. This is a command. It's not an option. It's not a suggestion. In fact, John reminds his readers that this is not something brand new. This is not some form of epiphany that they've never heard of before. What? We're supposed to love other people? We've never heard this before, John. Well, he suspected that they might want to respond that way, so he says this is nothing new. You've heard this from the beginning. Paul, in, many, in, in, uh, in actuality, would have relayed this message prior, and they would have heard this before. Loving one another is not new. To love one another is a common instruction in my household. It's not always as common as it should be practiced, but it is, by the way, I'm not confessing to any lack of love in our household, per se, but because we're human beings and because our children sometimes uh, are still learning through those things, not like some of us, uh, some of adults have, it's a common thing to remind our children, hey, you need to love one another. Sometimes it's stop, pause, sit down, let's think about this. 
that action that you just did against your sister or sister against the brother was something that was not loving. And God commands us to love one another. Do you think my kids go, what? Where did this teaching come from? What sort of heretical, uh, you know, no, they it's, uh-huh, yes, we know, yes, we know. And it's, okay, if you know, demonstrate it, do it, right? This is how John was teaching the beloved Christians, children of God, to love one another. And, oh, by the way, this isn't a new commandment. This is something that is normal. So just like the instruction to my children, the message or command of love was not new. In fact, in chapter 2 and verse 7, he also said, Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which ye had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which ye have heard from the beginning. It's reminding them of something that they had already known, that they knew, they had been taught before. And so it's the obligation of each Christian to love one another. And John isn't speaking of any form in any way of any perverted, inappropriate kind of love amongst Christians. But the most appropriate biblical Christ-like love. In fact, Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1, turn over there for a moment. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 22. 1 Peter 1, 22. We'll look here in just, uh, just a moment. We see that Peter acknowledged that there was a, a pure love which was to characterize Christians. What, what kind of love can meet such a standard? We're going to see here in a moment. Let's see if I have the right passage. First uh, Peter chapter uh, 1 and verse 22. Chapter 2 looked a little strange to me. I think I'm in the right passage now. Seeing you have purified your souls and obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. See that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. This removes any sort of possibility of any sort of wrong or perverted love. But it also reminds us of a standard of love. What kind of love is this? An author by the name of Raymond Gingrich provides some helpful definitions and distinctions concerning the type of love that's being spoken of here. Let me read a short excerpt from a writing from him. It's written very well. There are, quote, two kinds of love woven into the New Testament teaching. One is the phileo love, signifying affection or friendliness such as members of a family usually feel for one another. It has an application to members of the Christian family as well. The other word is agape, a much more meaningful word. Agape is a love that originates in the divine nature. It cannot be had except by the person who has become a partaker of that nature, according to 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4. This love is not only directed to the lovely and desirable, but also toward the unlovely and hateful, demonstrated supremely by God himself. He continues and says, This is the love that John exhorts us to direct towards one another. I like that. It very eloquently puts forth the meaning of what John is speaking of here. And it seems to magnify that and help us understand. This goes beyond the cordial handshake, but to a love that is God 
kind of love, a deep agape sacrificial love. So this command that's stated in verse 11 for us as Christians, we, we hear this command, we read verse 11, and we note how this love is commanded for every Christian. It is not a suggestion, it is not an opinion, and it is not, an ab, it is not to be an abnormal action in the life of Christians. It is to be the standard, it is to be the normal, it is to be normative to exercise, to practice this type of love. So we see the command stated in verse 11, that to love one another is not a new command. And then John very eloquently gives an illustration concerning this command. Some of the best teaching is teaching that comes with an illustration to help us understand. And so John gives an illustration here. You see that before you. It's in verses, verse 12 particularly, but then all the way down through 16. Let's just read through 16. Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one and slew his brother, and wherefore slew he him, because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we, know the bre- because we love the bre- brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and ye, not, ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. It's a helpful illustration, pretty graphic illustration, speaking of a historical murder that took place. In fact, in, uh, uh, in Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, we read about the account of Cain and Abel. So the command is illustrated here. A common method of John's writing style is that of contrasts, right? We've seen this. He contrasts one thing with the other. Righteousness with unrighteousness. Sinfulness with, with, um, with righteousness. And um, saved with unsaved and so on and so forth. Love with hate. And here, here's another contrast for us. Here he gives both the negative and the positive example of how one Christian is to love another. He says, in case you get it wrong, don't express the kind of love, if you could even call it that, that that Cain showed to Abel. Instead, express the kind of love and practice the kind of love that God showed to you. Talk about extreme ends of the spectrum, right? murder in sinfulness and hatred of Satan to perfect righteousness and love by God. So he gives us these two examples here. Example of how one Christian is to love the other. So let's look at the first one. Let's go back and look at verse 12. You might turn your attention there. Consider these things with me. First, we see the absence of love illustrated. This is the absence of love. It means there's no love that exists here in this illustration. Cain did not love his brother for his works of that his works were of that wicked one, the devil. This is what John is portraying as well as in John chapter 8 and verse 44 in reference to this. Back in the Gospel of John. He was a murderer from the beginning, speaking of the devil. And so John is equating Cain's wicked actions to that of the actions of the devil. 
Certainly not of the Lord, or righteous. So, reviewing the account of the murder of Abel, if you go back and read in Genesis chapter 4, the first 13 verses or so is the, is, is the main um, narrative of what took place there. We, re- we review that account and we're reminded of how totally unjustified the act was. It was complete, cold-blooded murder. Out of selfishness, out of pride. Cain just did not like to have a righteous man show him up. And so because God's favor was shown on one who was simply obedient to God's specific directions, instead of being obedient himself, he sought to murder the one who pleased the Lord with obedience. You know, murder is the outgrowth of hatred. Growing up in my family as a child, my parents are very particular. We pass this on to our children as well. That we are very, very careful if and when we ever use the word hate in reference to another human being, another person, whether they're lovely or not. Because hate carries an extreme connotation of murder, of death towards someone else. Hate is a very strong word. Even Jesus himself equated hate and murder in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 and 22. And so people who hate, really somebody that hates is somebody, by the root meaning of the word and the intention, is somebody who wants to do away with the person that they hate. For someone to say, I hate so-and-so, means that the desire is, I wish that person would cease to exist. That's the weight that hatred carries. And in many cases today, only, it's only a lack of opportunity as grotesque as that sounds, or a fear of the ramifications and the results of committing murder that prevents some from murdering others. Isn't that a sad reality? The hatred that can build up towards others. So John's readers were evidently puzzled. So look at this. He says, uh, marvel not, my brethren, if the world hates you. Look at verse 30. Marvel not. His readers were, were puzzled as to why the world was hating them. You know, why? Why do they hate us? We're doing right. We're do- living righteously. We're loving the Lord. Why do they hate us? And he writes to them and he says, marvel not. Or literally, stop marveling at these things. Stop walking around with your mouth open and your chin dragging on the gravel, shocked and stunned that the world hates you. You shouldn't be surprised at this. In fact, instead of being surprised by this, this is one of the marks of a righteous life, of one who is born again, when the world hates us. Marvel not. Stop marveling. Do you remember the words of prediction of our Lord and Savior in the Gospel of John? Do you remember when he was speaking to his disciples and Chapter 8 and verse 40 and chapter 10 and uh, verse 31 all the way through 39. And then in chapter 15, closer to his crucifixion, our Lord reminded those who followed him that the world will hate them. The world will show hatred toward us. So John is equating here continual, habitual hatred 
with murder. Hatred with murder. This is how serious God takes hatred toward another. He's equating it to murder. And that kind of hatred is not of God, but of the devil. So John concludes that a person that demonstrates hatred toward the brother is one who is unsaved altogether. One who continues in hatred. Remember the habitual, continual tense of the word. So look at the progression here of thought. Look at the intensity in this. So look at the scripture. Not loving. Then hating. Then murder. Then no eternal life. You see the dangerous progression here? So he who hates abideth or remains in death. Verse 14. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. One who does not love the brethren and does not love others is one who is altogether probably unsaved if there is no love shown to the brethren. No wonder God commands Christians to love one another. So we see the command illustrated. First, there was the absence of love illustrated through Cain and his actions towards Abel. And then we see the abundance of love illustrated. A negative and then a positive illustration. Look at the abundance of love illustrated. We see here in verse 16 particularly. There are two points of evidence present to substantiate the claim of new life in Christ. If there is one that professes to have new life in Christ, there are at least two that John gives to substantiate that claim that will be evident in the life of a claiming, professing, born-again believer. First, the world will hate us. Verse 13, there's number one, the manifestation of true um, uh, um, being born again. The world will hate us. Number two, we will love the brethren, verse 14. So verses 13 and verses 14 provide for us two um, evidences that substantiate a born-again life. The world will hate us, and believers will love the brethren. Of course, the supreme example of love is the love of God, which sent His Son, we've been singing about this evening, the incarnation of Christ, sent His Son to die, to come into a uh, to this earth, fully man and fully God, to die for a sin-ridden, um, rebellious people. This is God's abundance of love demonstrated through His actions of His Son. Look at verse 16 again. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because He laid down His life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. You know, this love was made known by the supreme act demonstrated at Calvary. Christ's death was personal. Christ's death was voluntary. He said, I lay down my life. No man taketh it from me, but I lay, down, lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. 
He willingly died for us. This is what we remember, remember as we gather around the Lord's tables we did this morning. He willingly died for us, and that is self-sacrificial love. Christ's death was also a term we use in theology. It was vicarious, or it was substitutionary. Simply means for us, on behalf of, or instead of, in place of us. He died in my place. He died in the place of sinners. And this substitution was a purpose of his coming. May we not forget that, especially this time of year. When we have opportunities, when even the world begins to think about things and may even make comments concerning Jesus' birth, the manger, so on. May we never forget, as we sang one of the hymns tonight, born to die upon Calvary. The purpose for His coming is the reason for our celebration. Scripture says in Matthew 20, 28, Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give His life a ransom for many. How great a love He demonstrated. Do you see the extreme contrast? The hatred of Cain and the love of God. What a contrast John shows us. So, Firstly, this evening, we saw God wants Christians to love others like He loves. We ought to love each other like God demonstrates love. And if there is no love, there is no righteousness. If there's an absence of love, there is no righteousness. Secondly, and lastly, this evening, we see that no sacrifice, no love. No sacrifice, no love. If we look through verses 16 through 18, we see this. 1 John chapter 3. What kind of response should there be to God's matchless love? Oh, it ought to be in a glorious response, shouldn't it? It should be of all the fanfare and all the celebration and all the obedience and glory given to Him that we could possibly muster up. His matchless love. Surely, at the very least, we ought to love Him in return. Like we refer to often, because He first loved us. At the very least, at the very minimum. But this is not the point that John makes. That is good. But John's not making that point here. He says, rather, we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Verse 16. Hereby perceive we that love God because... He laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. This is John's prescribed response for God's demonstrated love to us, that we should in turn certainly love him, but that we should love the brethren. This is our response. So that means we are to love what God loves and to the extent that God loves. We are to love like God whom God loves, and that is the brethren, others around us, other believers, other Christians. So love is personally expressed. Look at verse 16. We see this. This is a personal love. Although John does not say here that we are to love God in his response um, in, in response to his love for us, he does consider the love of the brethren a 
tangible evidence of our love of God. This is the, the other evidence that we looked at here, the two. The world will hate us and we'll love the brethren. So our love towards the brethren, John is considering this tangible evidence of somebody who actually is righteous and is born again. A proof of Christ's love is presented as a pattern for our love. We should lay, be willing to lay down our lives. We should be able to consider others' lives more important than ours. We should consider anything and everything in another person's life as more important than anything and everything in my life. That sort of a love from Christian to Christian. But the martyrdom, the laying down of life, I think many folks consider this incorrectly. So let me try and explain this thoroughly. That the martyrdom of a Christian is not salvific like Christ's death was. If one lays down their life for others, it does not automatically provide salvation for the other like Christ did, and only Christ ever did and ever will. But the laying down of a life for one brother to another is a demonstration of a manifestation of, of love toward the brethren like Christ has lied, uh, loved us, others, us. Instead, the Christian's death is service-related, a demonstration of love and, 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 and desire to, to care for and love more than self, the others. And so... The missionary, you consider the missionary this evening, who lays down his life, does not do so in an attempt to, um, uh, uh, when he lays down his life, in an attempt to present the gospel to those whom he's ministering to, that may take place. But the very fact that the life has been laid down does not mean automatic salvation is offered to every one of those. That is offered whether or not the life is laid down or not, you see? There's something else that's going on here. The missionary's death has no vicarious value like Christ's death does. It is a but, a personal demonstration of love when that takes place. John chapter 15 and verse 13 says this, Greater love hath no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. That's a demonstration of the greatest love that Christ demonstrated for us. And it is his love for Christ that motivates him, the believer, to do so for another. My wife has been reading, I mentioned this earlier, it's part of, whether Jacob remembers it or not, it's part of his recent profession of faith testimony. How my wife has been reading missionary stories as she works to teach our children in homeschooling. And so the day begins with reading missionary stories. And recently, my kids might remember, their ears will perk if they listen, and remember the story of Jim Elliott. You remember Jim Elliott? Nathan Saint, Pete Fleming, Ed McCulley, Roger Udarian, all of these men in the Amazon jungle. Do you remember? Jim Elliott being a pilot of a little yellow plane. And the story, the, the, the reality of the account of this taking place, there's so much involved, it's neat to listen. Have you ever read, anybody ever read about Jim Elliott before? Yeah? And his wife, Elizabeth, right, wrote of him. 
Let me just survey very simply and very quickly in, in an extraordinary way. I think this demonstrates sacrificial love. A missionary who had given his life to, to reaching some of the most, uh, the world would claim the most unreachable, horrific, deadly warriors in the Amazon jungle. There were other Amazonians that were called headhunters. You remember this? They would go and actually hunt heads. And they were fearful of the Auka Indians that Jim Elliott and these other men would go to. That's some pretty scary individuals. Individuals who were created in God's image and needed to hear the gospel. And as the account went, he ends up making contact with these Indians. And at one point in time, the men in the jungle, the, 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 the spear party came. And just when they thought they might be able to share the gospel, came and took the lives of those men who sought to reach them. As the account goes, and as God works intricately in all these details, no matter how horrific they may seem to us, the account went on that their lives were not given to, for any avail. In fact, they had several, I think the account goes, they had two 22 caliber rifles they had in a plane with them. One of the men was, was even an ex-military paratrooper from World War II. These men had the ability to defend themselves. The men had the ability to, to fight back. But they chose earlier on that that would be harmful to the testimony in which they were trying to reach. And so they chose to approach in a non-hostile manner. And their lives were taken. Years later, eventually, a handful of the men that were in that spear party that took those men's lives ended up trusting Christ as their personal Savior. They ended up being leaders in a church there in Amazon jungle. Some of the men, I believe it was possibly Jim Elliott's daughter and maybe others, were baptized along with some of the Amazonian spear hunters that killed them in the very same river that these missionaries died in. Sacrificial love. Sacrificial love. This doesn't, does this mean we all need to jump on an airplane? We all need to go find a jungle somewhere and lay down our lives? I don't mean to be, be um, um, silly about something that's serious. No, that's not what John is saying exclusively. But our hearts should be cultivating a sacrificial sort of love that that, that could be a possibility that we would love one another, that we would demonstrate love for others and, and, and the desire for the gospel to reach others so much that we'd be willing to lay down our own lives so that others might know whom loved us first, personally. Jim Elliott wrote while preparing to be a missionary before he even went to the field, before he even flew to the Amazon. And in, in a writing that was recorded, these words are found penned by him. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. What can we not keep? Our own lives. What can we gain? Pointing someone to Christ, they might receive eternal life. Love is personally expressed and also love is practically expressed. Look at verse 17, please. 1 John chapter 3, verse 17. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother hath need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? 
while love for the brethren may not require that we die for them, practically speaking, there are specific ways that we can demonstrate sacrificial love. John demonstrates one of them for us. The giving of our tangible possessions. The giving of what the Lord has given us and allowed us to have so that we might be able to give and to bless and to demonstrate love sacrificially to others. And so, using an illustration of hatred, John teaches that although a person may not be wealthy, you might not consider yourself and you might not be very uh, financially wealthy, we as believers have been given sufficient resources to, in some cases, meet others' needs. God has equipped and enabled us to be able to at least meet the needs of some others. And the way I may meet one's needs might vastly be different than the way that you might meet someone else's needs. There isn't a price tag, a limit, or a number on the median of needs, but it's more of the expression of the obedient response to God's command to love others more than ourselves. The providing of needs for another firstly requires that the Christian recognizes the need. This is important also. Seeth his brother have need. Do you see that there? Seeth his brother have need. The middle of verse 17. This is not a casual look, but rather this is a deliberate, intentional contemplation of a situation that's set before us. Wow, this person has a need. You know, I've, I've been noticing this is real. It's legitimate. I really don't think I'd be enabling this person this way. God has impressed this person on my mind. I think this is something that the Spirit is leading to do. I've noticed this is a real need because I'm looking for opportunities to help as God lays them and impresses them on my heart. That's the type of uh, scene that John is talking about here. But then the response is, but if he shutteth up his bowels of compassion... That is, he slams the door of his heart shut. No, somebody else will take care of that. I'm not giving them any of my finances or my goods. They'll only squander it. Who knows what will happen? Shutting up the bowels of compassion. There needs to be discernment here. We need to be wise. We need to certainly pray about these things. But to shut, up, shut his bowels of compassion portrays a slamming, as I mentioned, the slamming the doors of the heart. It reveals his true character. And when there's an ongoing character of, like, of, of this in a professing believer's life, John is making the point, he asks the question, how dwelleth the love of God in him? How can you say you love God when you shut up your bowels of compassion to those who are truly in need and you are equipped to be able to provide for that need? You put it in a positive way. This verse teaches that the person who is has the love of God dwelling in him, will see a brother in need and will open up his or her heart to him. And he or she will share his worldly goods with that person in need. Consider it this way. God gives. Believers give. The message this evening is that love gives. Some people talk a lot, but do very little. <laughs> you know what I mean? 
Some people just got a lot of good things to say, but you just don't see a lot of what they're saying done. John had these type of people in mind when he penned, I believe, verse 18. Last verse of the evening. My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. In actual, intentional, concrete, truthful action. He's not saying we shouldn't express our love verbally. We should do that. But that we should not stop with mere talk. We should put into practice what we are saying, what we're reading, and what we are learning. So how do we put these commands into action now? Maybe we start by asking that yourself this, this week by way of conclusion. Maybe it would be good for us as Christians. I, I challenge you to ask yourself this question. You might write it down. Because of God's love, a Christian, you might write your name in there, me, because of God's love, I will fill in the blank. Because of God's love demonstrated to me, I can fill in the blank. And consider through prayer ways in which you can demonstrate love, sacrificial love, God's love to others. Here's another one. How can a Christian express God's love in the church personally and practically? How do we put this into practice? How does the rubber meet the proverbial road in response to what we've been learning here tonight? And maybe you might ask yourself questions like this. Maybe I can't teach a class, but I can do this or that. Maybe I can't sing, but I can do this or that. Maybe I can't play the piano, but I can do this or that. Maybe I can't serve as a deacon, but I can do this or that. Maybe I can't drive the church van, but I can do this or that. Maybe I can't, and we can go on and on and on and on. Instead of focusing all these things that I just seemingly cannot be able to do, maybe understand that the Lord is allowing you for a purpose to not do those things because He's trying to get your attention to do something else. Consider these things. What can I do to put these things into practice so that I'm Somebody that's more than a talker, but a doer. Pray about how you might demonstrate Christ's love by meeting a need in your church or meeting the need in the life of an individual Christian. And remember, an obedient Christian's love, an obedient Christian's love life is one that loves others like God loves. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for First John. Lord, thank you for the illustrations of what a lack of love looks like. How hatred, what hatred leads to. Thank you, Lord, for that amazing contrast of being reminded this evening of what Christ, what, you, what your love is like, the sacrifice of your son for those who didn't even deserve, and in many cases did not even want. Thank you, Lord, for allowing many, many ways. The ways are plentiful in which we can demonstrate God's kind of love in the Christian's love life. I pray that we would improve, that we would increase in such a way that it would be contagiously spreading throughout this congregation, 
and it would draw attention from the community on how Christians love even the unlovable. Help us to be wise, to be discerning. Help us to not be desiring to be flamboyant or seen in our demonstrations of love, but led by you in truth and sincerity. In Jesus' name.